Well, I have often heard it said that there are only two things that are on this planet that will exist and last forever. Maybe, you know, I asked this question to our kids, and they, last night, they didn't know the answer, but maybe another child knows the answer. Two things on this earth that will last forever. Does anybody know? Only two things. Yeah, Dan, you're a good kid back there. Go ahead. Who, who's, who's got it? He doesn't have it. Who has it? Tom. Harley Davidson is not one. <laughs> yeah, Michelle. Diamonds, no. Despite despite the television show. Yeah, Spencer. That's right. Believers and the Word of God. The souls of men and the Word of God. It's the only two things that will last forever. God has put within each of us a spark of eternity. And though our bodies may pass away, our souls will live on for eternity. In the same way, God has settled His Word in heaven. And though the physical pages of of ink might might tear and might rip and might find themselves in a landfill someplace, God has His Word forever in heaven. Those are two things that are going to last. Everything else that you see around us will be destroyed. Peter said this, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will all be burned up. It says, everything you see will be destroyed. The chair upon which you're sitting will be totally consumed someday. The clothes that you're wearing will be gone. This pulpit here, as hard as it seems, will be gone someday. This building will be destroyed someday. Your homes in which you live, they'll be gone. Your cars will be burned. And this earth upon which we walk Someday be a great ball of fire. Jesus said it this way, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. Our souls and the Word of God, the only two things that will last forever. And in our text this morning, Peter speaks about both of them, really alluding to the fact that our souls live forever and then explicitly focusing upon how the Word of God is forever. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter. And everything in this text focuses upon the, the temporary nature of life and the eternal Word of God. Peter says this, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Now, contrary to your uh, your, your notes here in the bulletin, I I gave these to Michelle last night around I forget three o'clock or so. I've changed my title just this morning. I've had a better title. So you can just scratch that off. You're taking note. Rather than lasting things, here's my title this morning. Only some things last forever. Only some things last forever. And we're going to focus upon the two things that last forever. First is our new birth. It comes here in verse 23. Your new birth is a lasting thing in your life. Look what he says there. He says, you've been born again. Not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, to the living and enduring Word of God. At the end of, at the beginning of this verse, he speaks about how we've been regenerated by a seed. He describes that seed and he defines that seed at the end of verse 23 as the Word of God. Just as seeds are placed into the ground and generate plant life and vegetation, so also the Word of God acts like a seed in the souls of people that is planted and in the souls of men produces spiritual life. It's easy to remember where Peter thought. Where It's easy to think about where Peter learned these things, that the Word of God is like a seed 
planted in the soul. In Matthew 13, Jesus, or Matthew records the story about how the day when large crowds gathered around Jesus, and so much so that he got into a boat and went out into the sea. And he began to teach the crowds, and he said this. Perhaps this parable is familiar to many of you. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell by the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell upon rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. When the sun had arisen, they were scorched because they had no root. They withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus describes this, this farmer who had in his pouch some seeds and he was scattering them, planting his, planting his field. And sometimes it fell upon the, the hard places and the birds, it became bird food. Sometimes a shallow soil, which forced it to grow up because it couldn't grow down. And it grew up and then the sun came and scorched it. In other places, it was, it was grown in a place with lots of weeds that came up and choked it out. But uh, there was the good cultivated soil where the seeds sprout up and bore forth fruit 60, 100, 30 fold. And later the disciples said, Jesus, can you tell us what this uh, explanation means? Can you tell us what this parable is? And Jesus said this, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary when afflictions or persecutions arises because of the word. Immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. And the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And Jesus says that these four soils represent four souls of men. The word goes out, and on some, the, the heart is so hard that it almost the word just kind of bounces off, and nothing happens. It doesn't penetrate. But on others, it penetrates, and it gets into their soul, but without any depth, they just fall away. And then there are others that, that it gets in there, but there's so many things in their life that crowds, it out, that crowds out the word of God and chokes it. But then there are the true and the genuine, or the good soil, who take it, receive the word of God, See it implanted in their souls. See it bear forth fruit. The others may have some growth caused by the Word. But it's those that bear fruit that are the real believers. And this is what Peter's calling his scattered believers to do. He's calling them in 1 Peter to endure, to continue on, to bear fruit in your lives, even, as Peter says, in the most difficult of circumstances. Peter's writing not to people who are having things going well for them. Peter's writing to some people who are having very difficult things happening to them. In fact, I remember talking with one pastor about 1 Peter. And he told me, I use 1 Peter all the time in counseling. Why? Because Peter's writing some people who have it very difficult. And Peter's then telling them how it is that they ought to live in light of that. Peter says to endure. Chapter 1, verse 6. In your in your various trials, rejoice in them. And when the lusts of the flesh come against you, chapter 2, verse 11, abstain from them. And when Gentiles come and they mock you, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, chapter 2, verse 12. When you have a, a king like Nero, who wants to place the blame of everything upon Christians and say they are the faults for all the problems in the nation. You submit yourself to them. Chapter 2, verse 13. When you are in a difficult situation with a boss, with a master, you're a slave, and your master is unreasonable. Peter says, show forth fruit by submitting to them. If you're in a marriage where your husband is disobedient to the word, Peter says, submit to your husband. Peter basically calls us to follow the example of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 21. 
You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. That's who Peter's writing to. He's writing to people who are suffering and he's telling them to continue and to endure. He says at the end in chapter 5, it's uh, verse 12, he says, I've been exhorting and testifying you of the true grace of God. And he says, stand firm in it. Right? Continue on. Press on. That's Peter's message. And the reason is really simple why he says to press on. It's because the seed that has regenerated you, that has changed you into new life, is an imperishable seed. And thus, the, the life of Christ ought to have a continued impact on your life. Verse 23, you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through living and enduring Word of God. And as the seed is in you and doesn't die, it ought to continue to beat forth to give you strength to live in a way that Peter calls his people to live. Now, throughout the letter of 1 Peter, he's been contrasting the perishable with the imperishable. Because that ultimately is what we need. We need to see what's going to be destroyed and what's not going to be destroyed so we place our attention upon what's not going to be destroyed. Like, for instance, in chapter 1, verse 4, Peter says, you're going to obtain this inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. This heaven reserved for you, it's not going to fade away. It is imperishable. It's not going to be destroyed. Everything here is going to be destroyed. But heaven is not going to be. Peter contrasts those things. In chapter 1, verse 7, he speaks about the proof of our faith is more precious than gold which is perishable. You take out your wallet and you look in there. You look in there, your dollar bills, whatever cash you have in there. I have a lot in here. It's going to, it's going to be destroyed. In fact, Hannah, I remember... Mom told me this. I didn't know that. You had a dollar bill, right? And it got ripped, right? And it was hard, right? That's going to happen to every one of your dollar bills. They're all going to be ripped. And they're all going to be gone. But it's your faith, which is more precious than gold, will continue on and bring you into that imperishable inheritance. In verse 18 of chapter 1, Also, you are redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold, Right? Our, our redemption was accomplished with precious blood of a lamb unblemished and spotless, Jesus Christ. And that blood is able to save forever those who draw near to Him in faith. And now here, Peter again in verse 23, contrast the perishable with the imperishable. This time he's talking about the imperishable seed that's in you. If you think about this for a moment... You realize, you know, this is kind of strange for a seed, an imperishable seed. I mean, think about it. when you put a seed into a ground, what happens to that seed? It dies. But in dying, it brings forth life. In fact, that's even what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. And yet, Peter here is telling us that the seed within us that gives us spiritual life never dies. It's not perishable. It's imperishable. Right? Somehow, in some way, the seed of the Word of God, which is sown into the hearts of people and embraced in the hearts of believers, continues to bring forth fruit. It germinates. It keeps on producing some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And that's what Peter's saying. He's saying that, that this seed ought to have a continuing, lasting impact upon your life. I mean, think about what this means. Chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have in obedience purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Why? Because you've been born again from this imperishable seed, right? Continue to love and keep loving. Let your love not fade away. Let your love continue forever. Why? Because you've been forgiven. You've been forever changed by the Word of God as the seed is in you, working among you. Now notice when Peter puts out here <laughs> about uh, how you were regenerated. Look, look at the means he put out, the means of your new birth. He says, you've been born again through the living and enduring Word of God. The Word of God becomes the means of regeneration. 
just as when we come into this world physically, we come through two parents. When we are born again spiritually, we come through the Word of God. The Word of God is the means of our faith. As Paul says in Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. The only way that any of us are ever born again is through the Word of God that is communicated to us. Now, this is communicated in various forms. There's not just one way in which the Word of God is communicated to people. Some are are converted when attending a church service and a pastor is preaching the Scriptures to people. Conversions take place in church services. Conversions take place when attending a special meeting of some special type. Maybe some evangelist comes and specifically brings a, a gospel message with the intent and the prayer and trust the Holy Spirit that He will convert people. And it may come in such a way that it hits them like never before. And they embrace Christ, the precious blood of Him. There are others who are converted when they hear the Word of God preached on the radio. They're driving along and their life is in the pits and they're turning the radio and boom, hits something. They said, that's exactly what I need, God. I give my life to You. I need Your redeeming blood. There are some who are converted when they're watching a preacher on television. I know several who are watching Billy Graham on TV and converted right there in their living room. Some are converted. They simply read the Bible on their own. They get hold of a Bible somehow. They just start reading it and they're converted. I know someone like that. Oh, your sister is converted that same way, right? Just read the Bible. He It's great. We had Ulf at our house the other day. He said he just bought a Bible for his family in Germany, set it there and went off. And her, Your sister found it and just opened it up, started reading it and became a Christian. Many people are converted in their bedrooms as their little children. When mom and dad tuck them in at night, they have spiritual questions and they just pray with them right there in their bed. I'm sure that people have embraced Christ when they heard some Christian song playing on the radio. Something stirs within there. Yes, I need that. That's what I need. God, I need you. Some people become Christians when a friend shares with them about Jesus. Having problems in life and they talk about what their sin is before Holy God and lead them to Christ. There are others who have been converted just reading a gospel tract. Just a little a little tract. Just Somebody gives them just a few words. They're converted in that. I've heard of one man, and I'm sure many have been converted this way, being converted in a deacon's meeting. A leader of a church sitting there in a leadership meeting and comes to Christ. And so, the way some people are converted are just flat out miraculous. I've heard Mark Dever on a couple of occasions tell what took place when George Whitfield was preaching. He was hounded by this group of detractors who called themselves the Hellfire Club. Kind of wherever George Whitfield went, these followers went after him, you know, tried to heckle him and tried to persuade the crowds away. They mocked him and derided his work. On one occasion, there was a man named Thorpe who was mocking. George Whitfield. And in fact, what Thorpe did was he preached a sermon in which he mimicked George Whitfield. Gestures and, and anecdotes, everything as well. He, he brilliantly you know, was articulate, perfectly imitating Whitfield's tone and facial expression. And as Thorpe was doing this, God convicted him from the very words he was preaching, trying to mock George Whitfield. He was converted on the spot. God works wondrous ways, but He always works through the Word. Circumstances surrounding the miracle of regeneration vary greatly. I think this is the point of Jesus when He was talking to Nicodemus. You remember He says, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's not something we can figure out. It's not something that we can manufacture. It just works. The wind, it kind of blows. And though the circumstances are different and God works in many different ways, the means of conversion is always the same. It's always the Word of God. And that's what Peter says here. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Various different ways, various different forms, songs, radio, printed page, mother's teachings, but the, the means is always the same. You know, God has so ordained the universe that it's His Word that does that. Isaiah 55, verse 11, the promise of Isaiah is that God's Word will not return without accomplishing that which the Lord desires. 
And that's why we at Rock Valley Bible Church will put much emphasis upon the Bible. I mean, it's the only thing that's going to work. Not different forms in different ways, but it's the Bible that we need. It's the Word of God that we need. The Word is the agent of conversion. Parents, I just say this is why it's so necessary for you to create homes and create environments where the Word of God is central. Will you gather with your families and read the Bible to your children? Will you give them Bible songs and Bible tapes? Will you help them memorize the Scripture? You want your children to believe? Saturate with the Bible. That's the only way that God's going to work in their lives. Since the Bible is the only means of salvation, it's why missionaries are needed to be sent out to distant lands to those who don't have the gospel. I think, you know, we've, we've helped and supported some missions efforts in Nepal. You know, that's a Hindu nation. You know, it's Christians are only like 1%. Very, very small. We need people to look after Iraq and, and Iran and to get into those Muslim places because they need to hear the Word of God away with the Quran and with the Bible. That's why what's true across the world is also true across your neighbor's fence. You need to talk with your neighbors. Spread the word. Others might hear and believe. Right? Fellow workers, those you rub shoulders with, be talking about the Bible. Be talking about the word. We need to be bold with the gospel because the only way people be converted is through, through the gospel. I mean, that's why like, children's programs like Awana are so effective. Get the word inside people's hearts. And you know what? It, it might be dormant for a while, but it might generate and um, <clears throat> bring forth fruit later in life that you know nothing about. I remember discipling a man who in his Christian life was kind of waffling and floating. And uh, I began bringing up scriptures to him. He said, oh, I remember that in Nawana. Oh, that was Nawana verse. That was, and like all these light bulbs started going on because of all these words that he had hidden in his heart as a young boy. I think about the example of John Newton, the wicked slave trader who was converted and went about to bring the Lord much glory through his life as a hymn writer and a pastor. When he was a child, his mother taught him the Word. In fact, even his mother had mind, well, I want to train a, a future pastor someday. But his mother died before he was seven. So think about that. Mom's inputting his life. Before he's seven, she dies. So you think about that. Even It's not like she was totally healthy up until the end. She was probably waning. So even, even a six-year-old, a five-year-old, she's inputting into her life. And eventually, Newton then was influenced by his father, not his mother. His father was not godly. And so he went the ways of his father, lived a very sinful life, self-centered life. But in order to do so, he had to overcome the influence of his mother that the Word of God had etched on his soul. And this is what he wrote in his autobiography. He said, In the process of time, I sinned away all the advantages of these early impressions, yet they were for a great while a restraint upon me. So in other words, what he's saying is when he's when he was learned those things, he had to shed them off so he could sin. But for a long time, they, they were a restraint. They, they, they kept him from sin because he knew it was right and knew, knew it was wrong. He said they returned again and again, right? Like an annoying mosquito. Keep coming back and again and again. He said, finally though, it was very long before I could wholly shake them off. Finally he could. He pictures his mother's influence in the scripture, something restrained his sin. But finally, unrestrained wickedness when he thought he had rid it all. Now, would the truth be known? I don't think John Newton ever fully got rid of his mother's influence. And so in that storm on a ship in the middle of the sea, when John Newton cried out to the Lord for mercy, it very well may have been remembrance of the influence his mother had upon his life at that young age when he cried out. Listen to what John Newton said when he cried out for mercy, he himself was, um, was alarmed. So why, why did I do that? He, in the midst of the raging storm, he saw no hope. He's, he's heard what he prayed to God. He says, if this will not do, Lord, have mercy on us. And then listen to what John Newton writes. He says, this, though spoken with little reflection, was the first desire I had breathed for mercy in many years. And I was instantly struck with my own words. In other words, he's crying to God for mercy. He said, wait, wait, I thought I, I don't, I don't believe that, do I? I think it was the word that his mom put in his life when he was five or six years old 
It became the agent then of his conversion. But not only is the word the agent of our conversion, the scriptures are also the agent of our growth. Peter says there at the last phrase of verse 23, you can look at it there, he says, through the living and enduring word of God, the, the living God, the living word, there's, there's this aspect about how the word is, is, has a vitality to it. There's a, a life in this word as it lives and it endures. And when it gets in our souls, it beats and it has its work that it accomplishes. Maybe you know Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It says that God lives and works and convicts the hearts of men through the Scriptures. The Word convicts and it judges the thoughts and intentions of a heart. And so I simply said this. Do you want a passion for God? Do you want to grow in godliness? Do you want to grow in your love for Christ? We have a passion for the Bible. Saturate your mind with the Bible and let it do its work. I just did a cursory kind of study, just thought in my mind, well, what, what will the Bible do if it's, in your, if it's in your mind? Well, it will expose your sin and you need to confess sin, Hebrews 4, like I just read. It will comfort your heart that you need for the moment. It will do that. Psalm 119, verse 76. It will give you strength in difficulties to reflect upon the Lord. It will calm your fears. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. It will give you wisdom for the situations in life. Proverbs 4. It will keep you from sin. Keep you on the right path if you heed its directions. It will help you interpret life around you. Why is this world getting so bad? Well, God's Word tells us that it's going to get bad because people hate God. It will stir your heart to worship as you reflect and think about God, what He's like. You say, one thing have I desired, that I may be in your temple and behold your beauty. Psalm 27, verse 4. It will guide you in your decisions. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 105. The word will protect you from Satan's attacks. The word will keep you from the evil one. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3. It will give you God's perspective on life. Psalm 139 God, you searched me and you know me and you know everything about me. And I can just give myself to you. It will provide you with great insight into life. Psalm 119 verse 99 I have more wisdom than my teachers because I've got your word. All these things, God's word will do us. It gets in your heart and your mind. It lives and it's active and it endures. When you read it and study it and meditate upon it and believe it, God will work great things in your life. And Peter says, living and it's enduring. Well, let's look at the, the second thing that lasts. Not all things last forever, but there is something else. There is the new birth, which comes from an eternal seed implanted in our souls. There are also the eternal word, which comes in verses 24 and 25. For all flesh is like grass, Peter says, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. These words weren't original with Peter. They came from Isaiah chapter 40, when I just read to you earlier in the service. Isaiah's prophecy for the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, he's preaching about judgment. Judgment upon Tyre, judgment upon Babylon, judgment upon Egypt, judgment upon Assyria. There is some hope. Okay, There is some promise of blessing there. It's not all dark. But much of it is dark judgment. And then in chapter 40, it, it turns. Words of comfort begin to flow from the prophet's mouth. He prophesies of the coming of, of John the Baptist who will prepare the way of the Lord. And then Isaiah foretells of how the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And when we see the glory of the Lord, then come these words, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass grass withers and the flower falls off but the word of the Lord endures forever and then he comes he says this is your God he's coming your life is short but our God is eternal he's coming with a strong arm of recompense to his enemies he's coming with soft arms of a shepherd to his friends that's what Isaiah is and that's what Peter says here that's what he quotes now the reason I think why he's quoting here from Isaiah 40 is because many of these same things he's just talking about are brought up 
I mean, look at verse 23. In these words, we see a contrast to the perishable and the imperishable. In verse 24 and 25, we see the contrast between the grass and flower and the Word. There's a big contrast. One lasts forever and one will perish and fall away. Also, this vegetation thing comes up here, like the seed. It's in our heart. So also, we have this, this vegetation kind of thing. And so I think that Peter's bringing this up. In fact, maybe it was on his mind when he wrote verse 23. It's probably the case. But his message is clear. The things of the earth are perishable. Flesh withers away. Grass withers away. Flower withers away. But God's word endures forever. And before we get to God's word endures forever, we need to spend some time thinking about verse 24 of how short and transient our, our life is. They bring a contrast to God's word. He says, all flesh is like grass. All right, here you go. Maybe you've seen this before. This is your flesh. All flesh is like grass. Nicholas, this is what you like. Right? It's what you like. Now, that looks pretty good, huh? You say, no, no, this isn't me. Let me show you what I am. It says, this is me. Nick, would you rather be with Nicholas? You get your choice. You want this or you want this? You want both, huh? <laughs> All its glory of man is like the flower of grass. It smells nice. It looks nice. And it's pretty. I think this is talking about beautiful people, strong people. All its glory. Probably talking about the, the basketball players who can jump high. I mean, I, I saw this, this highlight the other night on ESPN.com. And... And this guy, his head was to the rim. That is glory. Now the guy's six seven. You think about how tall he jumped. I mean, he jumped three and a half feet. Football players, big, strong, and mighty. That's glory. These newspapers, not newspaper, magazines, whatever. I don't even know the titles of them. But you know, beautiful women on the front. Those are glory. And as I look upon all of you. Most of you are probably probably here. <laughs> this is the rich and famous. And this is us. And I think also Peter might talk about how this is this is us, but also there's lots of things that we might rejoice in. We might uh, have great excitement about. We might say, Oh, look at that big building, look at the accomplishments of man. Right? All the glory of men are like this flower. All right, now, now it's pretty good today. But Peter goes on, right? You, you know what's coming, right? The grass withers. Now, this is pretty green, but um, you know there is some brown in this. This is the, the grass withers. This, let me just pull off some withered grass. This is this is us. This brown stuff. All right. That's that's what we will be like. Not this green, thriving stuff. We are going to be like this brown stuff. The grass withers. And particularly in Israel, it would have been particularly easy to see because they're, they have like a California climate where everything turns brown. And it's, it's green in the spring and it's brown in the summer. And it's, it's awful brown in the summer. We go out and visit my, my folks in California every summer, and it is brown and nasty. They say, it does get green at some point. It is green. But that is man. He's green at one point. He's like grass, and then he gets brown. And then he talks about the flowers faded off. All right? This is our end. When the flower fades. That's us. We might think of ourselves like this, and you know what? Some of us might approximate some of that, especially in our youth. But this is where we're going. And you know what happens to this? I, in fact, I'm amazed that I got any of this. This is from our, our front yard, and I'm amazed I got any of this because normally when this happens to the plants, Avon is out there and working and getting that stuff out of here because it's so ugly. But a baby has kind of made our lives really busy, so she hasn't got to it yet. So we got a good illustration today in God's sovereignty. But this is where we will be. Let's just put that there. 
The flower falls off. What do you think? Peter gives us a pretty glamorous picture of who we are, right? We need to grasp who we are. We really need to grasp our frailty. And I just say this is especially true of young men. Young men, I see some young men over here. I see some young men. Most of the young guys are over here. Daniel, you're a young guy, maybe you, but especially young men. You're strong and you think you can capture the world. You can run with the wind. I have news for you guys. You can't do so forever. You can't do it forever. Your days are numbered. Maybe a day when you're no longer as strong or flexible or swift or as smart as you used to be. Yeah, I play in a basketball league uh, at First Free Church. I just started this my first year doing it, having a ball. I'm playing with these 20-year-olds who can jump and run, and uh, I'm a 40-year-old. And this past game week, we had a game. Game was on the line. We're like down four with four minutes to play. You know where I was, guys? I was on the bench. I was watching, cheering them on. Go, guys! Go, guys! <laughs> because my glory is past. <laughs> I'm trying to hold on to whatever glory I had. They let me get on the court for a few minutes anyway. I'm hoping next week, you know, we're down to only five players, so I'll get to play a lot, you know. And it's coming sooner than you think. And J.C. Rao counseled young men. He said this. He said, think for a moment what you are sent into the world for. Not merely to eat and drink and indulge the desires of the flesh. Not merely to dress out your body and follow its lusts whithersoever they may lead you, not merely to work and sleep and laugh and talk and enjoy yourselves and think of nothing but time. No, you were meant for something higher and better than this. You were placed here to train for eternity. And young men particularly need to hear this. Your body was only intended to be a house for your immortal spirit. It is flying in the face of God's purpose to do as many do, to make the soul a servant of the body not the body, a servant of the soul. But it's not just the young men who need to hear this. Who else needs to hear this? Old guys. Well, we'll get to you, old guys. But the young women in our congregation need to hear this. So I have some here. I have some in the back. I see there's some over here. (laughs) There's Nancy. Yep. Okay, we have some young women here. (laughs) You can spend your time making yourself pretty. And you can spend your time thinking that your beauty is where it's at. Make yourself attractive. I think that's what you need. And in some measure, you know what? You may succeed. You put that makeup on, you look nice. You do your hair right, you wear your right dress, and you may succeed. But you're this right now. Young women, this is what you are. And... This is what you're becoming. Now, I'm struck here whether I should say, just ask your mother or just look at your mother. I'm not sure what I should say. I'll let you interpret what you want to say. But listen to the counsel of Carolyn Mahaney writing to young women. He said, she says this. She says, you know the promises. If you're beautiful, you'll be happy and successful. You'll be popular among the girls. You'll be desirable to the boys. You'll achieve lasting intimacy and true love. You'll be confident and secure. You'll be important and significant. Yet the message is a lie. That's what Carolyn Mahaney says. It's not the flesh that ought to be our focus. Our flesh will fail. Our focus ought to be on that part of us that will live forever. Our souls. And Peter's going to say that, First Peter chapter 3, verse 3, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart. That's what Peter's going to say. That's what you need to say. As Asaph said, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And that's where we need to be. And for you older women and older men, That's where you are, and the more and more you get there, I trust that you'll see less and less the flesh is not as important. What's important is that that endures forever. 
As Peter says, God's Word endures forever. In other words, God's Word has been and God's Word will forever be. I quote earlier, I'll quote again, Psalm 119, 89, Forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in heaven. I don't know fully what that means, but it's, it's almost as if God forever, long past and long future, He's got His Word. It's in heaven someplace that's established. It's not going to be moved. And though the whole earth gets burned up and all our Bibles that we have are burned up, there still is the heavenly copy that's never going to be destroyed. Forever your Word is established in heaven. Psalm 119, 152, You've founded your testimonies forever been established is where they're always going to be. And Jesus came on the scene. He said the exact same thing. He says, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. The smallest letter or stroke, he's talking about just what differentiates one letter from another letter. Think about what differentiates a T from an F. He says, you're not going to just chop that off and add the little portion down there to be an F. Not one little jot or tittle, not one dot on an I, going to pass away until all is accomplished. Later in his ministry, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. They will be there. They will continue on forever. And the biggest implication of this is if God's word endures forever, it is worthy to be trusted. Long after the theories of Marx are done and gone, I think they're dying in this day and age with the falls of communism all over the place. God's word will still endure long after our Constitution falls by the way, as it's happening with more and more judges reinterpreting the Constitution, having it in their own mind, long after that falls away, God's Word will still stand. Long after Darwin is finally placed on the bookshelf as old and irrelevant, God's Word will stand. When the books of Skinner and Freud and Pavlov and Rogers all come to an end, God's Word will still be around. When the Book of Mormon ceases to be, God's Word will be. When the Koran is finally cast into the sea, God's word will be high and dry. And the implication is this, trust in God's word. It's the reliable source. Saints down through the times have always seen it reliable. It's the only thing that will last. It's been used and used and been found worthy. we got this map in our, in, our, uh, in our car. It's a map of northern Illinois. If you don't have one of these... Boy, get one of these. It's got every little country road on it. And you can see it is all ripped up. And we use this thing. I mean, you can see, look at how ripped up that is. And we use this a lot. Why? Because we've seen it to be trusted. And it endures. And that's what the Bible is. The Bible is our divine spiritual map that we need to trust. We need to tatter it. We need to make it worn and then buy a new Bible. So I've often heard it say, the Bible that's falling apart belongs to a life that's not because the Bible is trustworthy. And at this point in my message, I simply want to ask you, how much have you valued the Bible this week? I'm not talking about last month. I'm not talking about three years ago. I'm not talking about your education. I'm talking about this week. How much have you valued the Bible? Have you read it this week? Have you taken your Bible out? Have you read it? Maybe you've got the Bible on MP3. Wonderful. Have you listened to it? Maybe you've got Bible on CD. Have you listened to it? Have you got Bible on tape? Have you listened to it? Have you read books about the Bible to help teach you the Bible? Have you listened to people explaining the Bible? If God's Word endures, it's to be trusted, and we need to learn this Word. And it's the Word that acts in our life. How about this? What about with your family? Have you read the Bible this week with your family? At this point, you know what? I need to confess, in, in recent months and years, we've been really consistent as a family, but really these last two or three weeks, guys, have we read the Scriptures very much at home? We've not. And um, we just need to change that. Just busyness of life. Probably the last three weeks or so, it's probably what it's been. Kind of, We're doing really well up to that, and then we die. But you know what? I'm not interested in what was three weeks ago. I'm interested in this week. What are you doing with your family? Are you reading it? This is what's eternal, and we need to put in our minds what's eternal and what lasts. Only some things last forever. And how about put the, the Word of God, which lasts forever, into our souls, which last forever. You know, one of the biggest aims I have as a pastor governs, in a big sense, everything I do is to prepare all of you to stand that final day before the Lord. 
that's ultimately, you say, what's, what's my job? My, that's my job, is to prepare you for that final day standing before the Lord. And on the one hand, it's a simple task. <laughs> Just the Bible's going to prepare you. I need to get the Bible into you however I can. And the church, that's what the church needs to be about, to get the Bible in us however we can. So it's pretty simple. we got one tool. This is the tool we're going to use. But on the other hand, it's, it's difficult. Why is it difficult? Because there's so many things in life pulling for your attention. You've got dishwashers that break, right? Lord, you show, right? You've got dishwashers that break, right? We've got a dishwasher that's kind of on the blink right now. You've got lawns to mow, right? Phil, Kresky, you got lawns to mow. As I go around here, you've got houses to repair. You've got business to stir up. You've got all these different things vying for your attention. <clears throat> but you need to come back. You need to come back to the only thing that endures. It's God's Word. You need to hear from God. You need to continually have God put things in your life in perspective. You need to continue to see that you're like these dead flowers. That's what you need to hear. And that, by the way, is what the readers of 1 Peter heard. This is the word which was preached to you. They heard this word. The eternal word of God entirely changed their perspective on life. The word of God was the agent of the regeneration. Chapter 4, verse Three describes the sins in which these people were involved in. Involved in sensuality and lust and carousing and drinking parties and drunkenness and abominable idolatries. But when the Word of God came to them, God transformed them. Caused them to be born again. So those things, they, they no longer wanted to go after those things. They no longer want to watch those things. They no longer want to read those things. They no longer wanted to think about those things. They no longer wanted to be with those kind of people who are doing those things. Because God had changed them through the eternal word. And he says, this is the word which was preached to you. Now, it struck me when I was thinking about this. I don't know if Peter was talking here about particularly Isaiah. But you know, it very may well have been that when they preached, it was the prophecy of Isaiah Maybe some traveling evangelist had his three messages, and they're all in Isaiah. And so what I want to do is just open you to Isaiah. Turn back to Isaiah 40 and look at the message that was preached to them. Because they didn't have the New Testament at that time. They simply had the Old Testament. And they were preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And I wouldn't doubt if Isaiah 40 was a John 3.16 verse these traveling evangelists in the early centuries when they went forth and spoke because it is, a, it is a message of great comfort. In fact, look how Isaiah 40 begins. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. This is a, a word of, of kindness is going to come. <clears throat> so I can imagine these traveling evangelists going out to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are preaching and they opened up to Isaiah 40 and said, there's comfort. There's comfort to be had. And he says in verse 3, there's this voice calling. Clear the way for the Lord. And Isaiah prophesied at this time when the way would be cleared for the Lord to come. The valleys we made smooth. The valley lifted up. The mountains be made low. And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And we saw the glory of the Lord revealed. In fact, we even know people. I, I know the Apostle Peter and I know the Apostle John. They saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They handled Jesus. And that was the glory of the Lord, full of grace and truth. That's who Jesus was coming in. And that was the glory of the Lord. And then, and then verse 6 says, a voice says, call out. It says, what shall I call out? And he says, here's the message. Preach to people about their frailty and their temporality. Teach them how they're like grass and the flower of the grass that withers. But, verse 9, get yourself up on a high mountain and proclaim the good news. Lift your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bear of news and say, here's your God. Your God has come in Jerusalem. Jesus Christ, our God, came. So what did He do? Well, He did two things. Actually, He did one thing. He came and died for His people. But as the Lord comes, here's going to come in the future. Two things. Verse 10. He's going to come with His might. His arm ruling for Him. His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. Sings there about how Christ is going to return as a ruling, reigning lion. 
came as a lamb the first time. It's this precious sacrifice for sins. And believe in him as a lion, as a lamb, because he's coming as a lion. And if you are found unrepentant, walking in your sins, loving your sins, pursuing your own flowerly beauty, he's going to come and you're going to deal with him as a warrior, his arm with his recompense before you. But if you repent today and believe and trust in this lamb, he will become to you like a shepherd. Verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will carry the lambs, gather the lambs, and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead the nursing ewes. You know, this God is great and mighty. Let me tell you about this God, 12 and following. And, and the preachers, I'm sure, as they went out, probably talked about just the greatness and grandeur of this God. And yet, he's not this big ogre in the sky. He's a shepherd that will come and will gently care for those who repent of their sins, who trust in the Savior, who see the sufficient sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, and you'll be your shepherd. So I just ask you, is he going to be your, your shepherd? Or is he going to be your adversarial warrior who's going to come and fight against you? This is the eternal word. Isaiah spoke it in 700 B.C. Peter quoted it around the time of Christ. Whenever he wrote this epistle, 50 B.C., 60 B.C., A.D. And it's still here 2,000 years later. And you know what? 15,000 years later, this word is still going to be there. Still going to be true. The whole earth by that time, hopefully will be all burned up and we'll be with Christ in glory. But it'll be there. And a million years later, God's word will still be there. Are you going to trust this enduring, trustworthy word? My prayers to pastors, you do. All I can do is... Sow the seed, and we'll see where it germinates in your heart. So let's pray. But I would pray for good soil. I pray for good soil that would take this seed, plant it in the souls of people, and it would bear forth fruit hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold, to abound to your glory. Lord, show them of how temporary life is. Whether they're young, show them how temporary their life is. And as they're older, show them how temporary life is. Lord, prepare us to meet our God. And I thank you that you are a kind and merciful one to those who believe and trust and repent and are born again. And may we be found in you, not having a righteousness of our own, established by the law, but a righteousness which is found in Jesus Christ. Lord, I would pray for those who are unrepentant, have hard soils. Or maybe they have shallow soils. Or maybe they have thorny soils. God, I pray that you would do the work to get the, get the thorns out of there. God, change them into be good soil. God, they might learn and grow and know and love you. I pray in Christ's name.